0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Sharon Brown rushed into Meridian Mortgage at 8am sharp and took her seat at the receptionist's desk. She'd hoped to be the first one in, but was surprised to see a customer already stewing in the lobby. She recognized the man as Tony Kiritsis. He'd been working with the company for several years now, but something about him always seemed off. That morning, he wore a strange sling on his arm and laid a department store suit box carefully next to him. He didn't seem happy and didn't bother to say hello, so Sharon decided to leave him be. She set her coat down and got to work. Around 10 minutes later, The company president's son, Dick Hall, strode in. As soon as he entered, Tony leapt to his feet and followed Dick into his office. But just moments after closing the door, Sharon heard the muffled sound of the two men yelling, then a loud thump, as if someone had run straight into the wall. She strained to hear over the background noise and caught the words hostage and shotgun. As they echoed through the office door, When she dialed 911, the dispatcher was surprisingly matter-of-fact. They already knew what Sharon was calling about, because they had Tony on the other line. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim? Or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? you can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParkCast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll discuss Tony Karitsis and his crusade against the Meridian Mortgage Company. After his business relationship with The Office soured, Tony took drastic measures to get what he wanted, culminating in a nationally broadcast hostage crisis. Next week, we'll discuss the aftermath of Tony's rampage and the captivating court battle that followed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money. Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.
0: There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of
1: skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning.
0: From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Tony Karitsis always saw himself as the quintessential salt-of-the-earth working man. The son of two Greek immigrants, he got his first job when he was just nine years old at his father's ice cream stand. Though Tony had a wonderful relationship with his mother... The family was forced to pinch every penny to get by, and his father took things to the extreme. During his shifts at the stand, Tony's father ordered him to scour the surrounding streets for used paper cups on the ground. He was expected to wash the cups so his father could reuse them to save money. On one occasion, Tony failed to pick up the discarded items quickly enough. A car backed over them, flattening the cups and rendering them useless. Tony's father wasn't in a forgiving mood. He whipped his son while one of Tony's friends and all of his siblings watched on. The brutal public humiliation and abuse stuck with Tony into adulthood. He developed a temper like his father and refused to compromise when it came to money or property. Tony Kiritsis always got what he felt he was owed. Despite his difficult upbringing, however, Tony didn't often show his dark side to others. As long as money didn't complicate a relationship, he was a hardworking, relatively friendly man who kept to himself. After graduating from high school, Tony enlisted in the U.S. Army and climbed to the rank of corporal. But when he got out, he felt aimless. With no real direction, he drifted back to the family business. By that point, his father had sold the ice cream stand and used the money to found a trailer park. Along with his siblings, Tony helped manage the park for over a decade. While he worked there, he managed to double the gross revenue from $10,000 to $18,000 per year. He also put his own money into developing the trailers, regularly put out fires with the park's residents, and helped pay down the back taxes. Work was the closest thing to a hobby for him, He was a valuable asset to the business and he knew it but not everyone saw things his way in 1968 when tony was 34 he got into a heated argument with his brothers steve and tom about money the dispute escalated to the point that tony shot a gun at the two men no one was injured and tony later claimed it was only a warning shot to let them know he was serious but in reality It was a disturbing and worrying escalation. Immediately after his sudden bout of anger, Tony was consumed by guilt. He turned himself into the police the next day, but was never charged. Still, his family worried that Tony needed help. Before I continue with Tony's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In 1989, Researcher Kathy Spatz-Whitem studied children who had experienced abuse or neglect in their youth. She found that men who were victimized as children were more likely to be arrested for violent criminal acts later in life. Victims of all sexes, genders, races, and ages were also twice as likely to experience anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and mania in their adult lives. These kinds of negative stressors may have made it difficult for Tony to think straight. After the argument with his brothers, he tried to make amends but never got over his fixation with money. He came to believe he was being underpaid for the work he did at the trailer park. It's unclear whether he was justified or not but regardless, Tony felt his family owed him more for his personal contributions to the business. His complaints didn't produce the results he wanted, so Tony took more drastic measures. In 1970, the 36-year-old broke into his sister Effie's trailer and held her at gunpoint. He rambled incoherently, brandished his weapon recklessly, and demanded a settlement from the family for all his years of hard work. It was a mess. The family tried to get through to Tony, but he wasn't in the mood to negotiate. He wanted his money. And that was all there was to it. Tony held his sister hostage for a staggering two and a half days while the family pleaded with him. In the end, they gave him $55,000 as a settlement to let Effie go. Tony also made them promise not to press charges or send him to a psychiatrist for examination. That was his final year working at the trailer park. After those two incidents, He cut off all contact with both his brothers and sister. It was a tragic and chilling farewell. But with his time at the trailer park behind him, Tony felt like he'd rid himself of an enormous burden. Freed from the stress and baggage of working with his family, he embarked on a new career. In 1970, Tony started working as a car salesman it was a great fit for him as it combined his entrepreneurial spirit with his love for meeting people. One of his co-workers called Tony an excellent salesman with a strong mechanical ability to boot. His work ethic made him stand out at the dealership. He was regarded as a likable and trustworthy guy by his neighbors too. He was known to spontaneously stop by to help people move furniture or do any other heavy lifting they needed. As Tony thrived by himself, he started to nurse some big dreams. He wanted to move up in the world and longed to one day develop a full shopping center on his own. He hoped to use the money he'd saved from selling cars, along with his ill-gotten family settlement, to make it a reality. Soon, he'd done some research and sketched out a plan to build a 10,000-square-foot restaurant, one of the largest in Indianapolis. But it really was just a sketch. Tony projected the business could bring in one to two million dollars per year, but only had vague ideas to back his numbers up. He never decided exactly what kind of restaurant he would build or what other businesses the shopping center might include. Details weren't Tony's strong suit. He planned to make his dreams happen through hard work and unbridled ambition. After window shopping around town for a while, he pinpointed a 17-acre tract of land in West Indianapolis as perfect for his shopping center, but he couldn't afford to develop it without outside help. In 1972, the 39-year-old applied for a $110,000 loan from Meridian Mortgage, a local commercial real estate company. It was a family business founded by M.L. Hall and staffed by his sons. It seemed like Tony was in good hands, the Hall family had an excellent local reputation. ML built a powerful empire in Indianapolis and gave his three sons a top class upbringing. They were afforded a brand of classic Americana that was inaccessible to Tony growing up. Dick Hall, ML's youngest son and in his 40s at the time, was a loyal supporter of his father's business. He was the president of Hall Hotel Realty Co a subsidiary of Meridian Mortgage, which focused more on residential property. Both of Dick's older brothers also went on to head divisions of Meridian Mortgage. All three of them often sat in on their father's meetings. That was how they got to know Tony Kuritsis. A few months after drawing up the vague plans for his restaurant, Tony visited Meridian Mortgage for the first time. There he met ML and hit it off fast. The elderly man saw Tony as a hard worker and a straight shooter, but it didn't take long for the relationship to sour. While ML supported Tony's vision for a shopping center, Dick and his father's colleagues urged him against loaning any money. Tony didn't have much income and was saddled with debt to boot. It seemed like a no brainer. Still, Despite a four to one committee vote against loaning Tony the money, M.L. had the last word. He unilaterally approved a loan on a two-year term and helped Tony purchase the 17-acre plot. Between 1972 and 1977, Tony came into Meridian Mortgage between 30 and 50 times for advice from M.L. He had no experience in commercial real estate development, but was willing to work hard. ML happily offered Tony help at no extra cost, and Tony was extremely grateful. After living under his own father's tyranny for so many years, he thought he'd finally found someone to nurture him, someone who actually wanted him to succeed on his own. But it wasn't all good news. As the loan term went on, Tony realized he had a more difficult road ahead of him than he'd originally thought developing the land was expensive and his financial situation was already precarious. Two years suddenly seemed like it wasn't enough time to pay back the $110,000 loan. Luckily for Tony, ML gave him a long leash, likely due to their budding friendship. Despite receiving no payments on the principal for the first two years, Meridian Mortgage extended the loan term twice he was given four full years to make his dream a reality, and the time passed all too quickly. Another year went by, and Tony's prospects looked even dimmer than before. The stress started to take a psychological toll. In 1975, without any clear reason, Tony left his job at Cleverly Lockhart Cadillac. He told his coworkers he wanted to dive headfirst into the real estate business. Another employee who worked there around this time described Tony as a high-strung person with severe emotional problems. He remembered Tony said that he felt like someone was trying to do something to him, to hurt him and take what was his. To Tony, that was unforgivable. But he wasn't the only one with a bone to pick. From the mortgage company's perspective, Tony's dream was all but dead he clearly didn't have the expertise or the capital to be a real developer. Seeing little to no progress on the shopping center, ML started encouraging him to consider offers to resell the land. To Tony, the suggestion was a slap in the face. As it turned out, ML was just as concerned with the bottom line as his own father. The company didn't really want Tony to achieve his dreams It only wanted to make a profit. In a flash, Tony turned on Meridian Mortgage, becoming paranoid and skeptical of the entire operation. FBI criminal profiler Patrick Mullaney has stated that childhood victims of abuse or neglect like Tony often feel the need to be in control of situations. If anyone else steps up to lead, they typically react with strong suspicion When someone or something attempts to take control away from them, their fears can turn to intense anger. That's exactly where Tony was headed. In one meeting at Meridian in early 1976, he brought in an offer to sell his land from a local business for about $500,000. It was more than enough to pay off the original loan and turn a profit but Tony wasn't exactly pleased to be presenting the offer. ML's son, Dick, remembered Tony as behaving erratically during the meeting. He was the one who brought in the purchase agreement that day, yet he concealed most of it from the team. It seemed his goal was simply to convince Meridian that he legitimately had an offer. It was hard to tell whether this was Tony's attempt to prove his competence or if a part of him couldn't believe the terms himself. For the entire two-hour meeting, he teemed with suspicion and paranoia, terrified that Meridian was plotting to take his land out from under him. According to Dick, his father's only goal was to recoup the money he'd lent Tony. This new offer was a win-win, an opportunity for everyone to get what they wanted. Eventually, both Tony and ML's patience started to wane. Tony felt unfairly pressured to sell his property. In his opinion, the company no longer cared about him or his dream. The men in silk hats, as he liked to call them, were only conspiring for their own gain. For his part, ML couldn't fathom why Tony refused to sell for guaranteed profits. In the months after he learned about the offer, ML regularly urged him to take the deal. Tony, however, was still convinced he could get his fabled shopping center off the ground. He always just needed more time. In his eyes, Meridian Mortgage's lack of faith was the only thing holding him back. The dispute finally came to a head in June of 1976. That month, ML asked Tony to come into the office and told him that he would not extend the loan again. He wanted his money back by March of 1977. Tony exploded with rage. It was in this meeting that Dick saw his father, normally an incredibly calm man, pushed to his limits. By the end of the talk, both men were fuming. Tony looked ready to throw a punch. ML warned him that the company would foreclose on the land if Tony didn't get the money together fast. Then, the 77-year-old roughly grabbed Tony by the bicep and threw him out of the building. It was the first time Dick had seen Tony so agitated, and the last time he would see him at all until February 8, 1977. Coming up, Tony Takes Matters into his own hands
1: robbing trains rustling cattle pop culture usually depicts the old west as an uncharted land with no rules but how much of that is true now you can find the facts learn the lore and tackle the tallest of tales in the spotify original from parcast wild wild west every thursday on spotify Settle up to the saloon to hear about the American Frontiers' most ruthless outlaws and heroic gunslingers. Wild Wild West features a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network and focuses on the legends that help shape American culture. From sharpshooters and explorers to family feuds and lost treasure, the West has a history more complex than you know. Don't be a yellow belly. Follow Wild Wild West free and only on Spotify.
0: Now, back to the story. In June 1976, at the age of 44, Tony Kiritsis was forcefully escorted out of the Meridian Mortgage Office Building. He owed the company over $100,000 in unpaid loans and its president, ML Hall, had just given him his final warning. Meridian would foreclose on Tony's property if he didn't pay the company back before March, 1977. That gave Tony only nine months. Tony was left feeling deeply wronged. His close friends in Indianapolis called him a good man that didn't stand for any nonsense. It was important to him to do the right thing and he grew enraged when he felt others were abusing their power. Tony firmly believed Meridian Mortgage hadn't been upfront with him. In his opinion, they had presented him with bad deals on purpose, including one instance in which they offered to buy part of his land back from him. He felt that the company wanted to steal the prime tract from him and milk as much interest from him as they could along the way. In his eyes, Meridian Mortgage was a cold, emotionless corporation who felt entitled to his land because they were on top of the financial hierarchy. Tony claimed to care about the land while the company only cared about money. Tony was absolutely unshakable in his belief that he was the hero of the story. He was the victim, a man who pushed an ice cream cart for 12 hours a day at just nine years old. Meanwhile, Dick Hall and Imel's other sons lived on Easy Street, born with a silver spoon in their mouths. Tony had suffered, so he couldn't accept that he might be in the wrong. He envied the life that the wealthy enjoyed, and in time, came to see Meridian Mortgage as the embodiment of everything he hated. Dr. Thomas F. Liffick, a psychiatrist familiar with the Kiritsis ordeal, believed Tony's worldview fueled a lot of violent behavior during his lifetime. Whenever Tony got hurt, he believed he should be allowed to go out and get revenge by any means necessary. So, soon after getting thrown out of Meridian, Tony hatched a plan to ensure the company would never see a scent from him. In the months leading up to February, 1977, Tony became more and more fixated on the land situation. He descended into a familiar fury, one that hadn't gripped him since he cut ties with his siblings seven years earlier. In his small apartment in downtown Indianapolis, he practiced rigging explosives, sawed off the barrel on his shotgun, and studied how the police are trained to react to violent scenarios. He filled notebooks with his musings, the names of police officers, maps of downtown Indianapolis, and more. Tony was what we would call today a domestic terrorist. In a 2017 study of this phenomenon in the United States, Vern Pearson claimed one of the main driving forces for domestic terrorists is a hero complex. Essentially, these offenders believe they are heroes who have earned the right to fight injustices head-on. To them, the ends always justify the means. Pearson found that victims of abuse or neglect in childhood, like Tony, were much more likely to show signs of these hero complexes. They wanted to save others from the injustices they believed they had to endure. Tony was just another in a long line of violent heroes. He needed to prove to his community that M.L. Hall was in the wrong and that he was the good guy. And on February 8th, 1977, he presented his argument to the entire United States. That frigid Tuesday morning, Tony awoke at the crack of dawn. He put his arm in a sling to conceal a 38 caliber pistol he also packed a small box with a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun, a coat hanger wire, and a dead man's line, which was a contraption designed to fire the shotgun without anyone touching it. Around 8:08 that morning, Dick Hall, the son of Meridian's founder, came into the office to find Tony sitting in the lobby. At that moment, Dick was actually relieved to see him. Tony's loan term was up on March 1st, with less than a month remaining. Dick assumed he had come by to pay the company off. After witnessing several heated discussions between Tony and his father, ML, Dick was excited to move on with his life. But that wasn't at all what Tony had in mind. Originally, he didn't even intend to target Dick. He was just in the exact wrong place at the exact wrong time. Tony had wanted to meet with ML directly that morning but figured the man's son was good enough to send a message. Dick brought Tony into his private office and Tony asked if they could close the door because his jockey shorts were bothering him. It was an odd request, but Tony often said odd things. Dick obliged. A moment later, he looked up and saw Tony had taken his arm out of his sling to reveal the thirty-eight caliber pistol. Dick froze completely stunned. All he could do was comply when Tony ordered him to take off his suit coat and sit in his desk chair. Dick looked on in silent horror as Tony pulled out his shotgun, ran the wire through the trigger and attached it to a ring on his index finger. He had already removed the safety mechanism from the weapon. Now, the system was fully rigged. Tony passed the contraption back to Dick who shivered. The shotgun was now pointed directly at the back of Dick's head, ready to fire at any moment. Worst of all was the dead man's line linked to the trigger. Any kind of falling motion triggered it. This meant that if Tony was sniped from afar while the mechanism was armed, or if he just accidentally tripped on the carpet, Dick would instantly be shot in the head. Despite meticulously planning things out this far, Tony's next move was spontaneous. After rigging up his DIY death trap, he picked up the office phone and dialed 911. As soon as he reached the dispatcher, Tony embarked on a 50-minute tirade, listing off his many grievances with the Meridian Mortgage Company to his confused audience. In one breath, he painted a picture of a large corporation victimizing an honest working man. He spoke to the dispatch officer with tenderness, asking if any of his friends on the force were working that day. But in the next breath, Tony was anything but a humble Indiana businessman. He randomly burst into foul-mouthed rants about the land deal and threatened Dick's life. Soon, He was yelling at the top of his lungs that he wasn't ashamed of a single thing he was doing. Dick was all but certain Tony was going to kill him. The most twisted aspect of these diatribes was how concerned Tony was with his own notoriety. He clearly wanted this moment to be documented, discussed, and broadcast for all to see. After all, he was a hero. Because of that, much of what he said over the phone was deliberately designed to paint himself as a rugged man who was fed up with the cruel world around him. He warned the operator, he was mad, he was mean, he was Tony Kiritsis. He then spelled his name out letter by letter. One couldn't help but imagine him winking to some imaginary spectators in his mind as every moment suddenly revolved around him. This kind of behavior matches closely to that of other domestic terrorists. In his study of the phenomenon, Vern Pearson observed how those men and women craved attention even more than they relished violence. During Omar Mateen's mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, for example, He frequently stopped in the heat of the gunfire to check social media, call 911, and text friends. Pearson argued, these antics stem from a need to feel significant or relevant, usually because the reality of their lives makes them feel the opposite. In Tony's case, the facts showed that he was completely incapable of paying back the loan he took out from Meridian Mortgage. He hadn't made any payments in four years, and the loan was extended twice. With only one month left to pay his dues, perhaps Tony couldn't accept another defeat. Instead, he created a narrative that made him the main character. It was suddenly about so much more than money. It was about spectacle. Tony made sure to ask the dispatch officer if he had been recording the call, then hung up at 9.04 a.m. At that exact moment, the first group of Indianapolis Police Department officers stepped foot in the Meridian Mortgage Company's lobby. They were just in time for a show. Coming up, Tony executes his escape plan. Now, back to the story. By nine o'clock in the morning on February 8, 1977, downtown Indianapolis was in chaos. Police cruisers, foolhardy journalists, and terrified onlookers swarmed the perimeter around the Meridian Mortgage Company. Inside, three police officers scurried up the stairs to the fourth floor, where Tony Kiritsis, aged 45, had rigged a shotgun to Dick Hall's head. As the officers climbed, they heard Tony screaming at the top of his lungs from inside the office. When they entered, one of the men calmly asked what he was so mad about. The officer's real aim was to get a closer look at the wire around Dick's neck, but after getting one step too close, Tony pulled a pistol from his waistband and told him to back off. In mere seconds, Tony had seized control of the situation. All the policemen could deduce from the surreal encounter was that Tony's death rig looked plausible. He started barking orders at the officers, demanding that they escort him out of the building. At that point, Tony was improvising. On his way to the Meridian Mortgage offices that morning, he'd accidentally snapped the key to his car off in his ignition. He no longer had a functioning getaway vehicle, so he demanded a police car instead. It was an absurd request, but there was no way for officers to refuse. Left with no choice, authorities led Tony and Dick back down the stairs to the ground level of the building. Tony then meandered into the street with Dick, wandering along the city's blocks like a lost puppy. Police officers surrounded him and followed every step of the way. They knew if they tried to make a sudden move to disarm Tony, that small shift in his balance could potentially set the dead man's line off. Experienced officers ordered the younger recruits to keep their weapons holstered. Others focused on moving pedestrians out of the range of fire. A wide berth started to form around Tony. He had brought what seemed like the entire Indianapolis Police Department to a stalemate. With the authorities playing it safe, Tony was free to speak his mind and live out his fantasy. His emotional state fluctuated rapidly. At first, he waxed poetic about his love and respect for police officers, apologizing for putting them in the situation and promising he meant no harm. Then, like the switch wired to Dick's neck, Tony flipped. He screamed at the authorities and warned them to stay back. He wanted it known that he had no qualms about shooting Dick if it came to that. At that point, Tony started claiming that he didn't even care if he lived or died, and then immediately shifted back to a deranged optimism. He swore he would never go to prison for his actions. In between, he fidgeted about, talking to several different officers at once about disconnected topics. He even ran into people he recognized on the street and stopped his rants to say hello. It was a tricky situation. In their 2009 study, doctors Jerry D. Smith and Melissa Combs outlined behavioral profiles for hostage takers. They narrowed these culprits down into four distinct types antisocial, emotionally unstable, seriously mentally ill, and substance intoxication. While Tony may appear to be antisocial at a glance, these hostage-takers are usually known for being well-groomed and charming. While Tony also may have struggled with some kind of mental illness, he doesn't quite fit that label either. And one of the many things he yelled to police officers was that he hadn't drank in years and never touched a drug in his life ruling out the substance intoxication. This likely makes Tony an example of an emotionally unstable hostage-taker. The telltale signs for these criminals are childhood abuse and psychotic behavior under times of immense stress. They are known to babble, as well as undermine their own position and leverage before they've achieved their goal. Violent fits of rage are also common. With snipers and police gunmen surrounding him, Tony was experiencing an onslaught of stressful stimuli that likely caused him to lose control bit by bit. As a result, his behavior was not only erratic, but extremely dangerous. In the course of his wanderings, for instance, Tony started walking Dick away from a busy intersection, all while locked in a heated debate with law enforcement. When an officer shouted something that enraged Tony, he doubled back to respond. When he did, he swung Dick around with too much force and slipped on the ice. He stumbled, tugging hard on the dead man's line as he went down. Instinctually, some officers drew their guns or prepared themselves for the shotgun to fire. From the shocked look on Tony's face, authorities knew he was expecting the same thing. But in a moment of reflexive survival instinct, Dick squatted down as he noticed Tony losing his footing. This loosened the tension on the cable just enough to prevent the gun from firing. Whether it was a calculated move or an accident, it may have been the one time Dick Hall had any say in whether he lived or died. For the police, it was nerve wracking to say the least, but the near miss ultimately worked in Tony's favor the more difficult he was to predict the more conservative the police became in dealing with him with all this frantic running around on icy roads it was only a matter of time before they had to intervene after about a half hour of following tony around and listening to his ravings the indianapolis police department decided to take action given the precarious and dangerous nature of the situation their strategy was simple give the man what he asked for at 9 35 a.m having walked over half a mile with the public watching the whole time like a slow-moving parade tony and dick finally reached their getaway car tony turned the corner from the town's main drag to a side road called senate street there he spotted an officer standing in the middle of the intersection with his patrol car like an invitation The driver's door was wide open and the motor was running. Tony moved carefully toward the unoccupied cruiser. He told the officer to turn around, then confiscated his handcuffs and gun. Tony then backed his way in through the driver's side of the cruiser, pulled Dick in after him and sped off. Not a single police officer knew where Tony was headed, but they followed closely behind. Inside the car, Tony was an emotional wreck complaining to Dick that the dead man's line didn't work when he slipped. No one knew where he was headed and some thought he might flee the country. But Tony wasn't running. Escape hadn't even entered his mind. Not when everything he wanted was right there in Indianapolis. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with part two of the story of Tony Karitsis. We'll cover the end of Tony's hostage situation and the highly contested trial that followed. For more information on Tony Karitsis among the many sources we used, we found the documentary Dead Man's Line, directed by Alan Barry, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Hughes Ransom, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lene Hobbs.
1: Hey, partners, it's Carter from Parcast. You've probably heard stories about outlaw Jesse James, sharpshooter Annie Oakley, and the horrors of the Donner Party. But how much of what you've heard is actually true? Find out on my new series, Wild Wild West, where I head out on the frontier to find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Wild Wild West, every Thursday, free, and only on Spotify.